0: I'm Lindsay Berra and welcome to Food of the Gods, a podcast that explores how elite athletes eat and train to fuel performance. In these Guru's Editions, we'll feature strength and conditioning coaches, nutritionists, recovery scientists, and other performance specialists who help athletes to be their best. In this two-part episode, we talk with Justin Sua, head of mental performance for the Tampa Bay Rays in Major League Baseball. He helps athletes to improve their mindsets and their decision-making skills because thinking better allows them to perform better. But Justin's advice isn't just for elite-level athletes. His tips and life hacks apply to anyone who wants to calm their nerves, increase their focus, or just have a better relationship with those voices in their head. Where are you right now?
1: Bradenton, we're in Bradenton, Florida, about 35 minutes south of uh, St. Pete, uh, Tropicana Field. So, so, uh, so yeah.
0: Do you live in Florida year round now?
1: Yes, the year round. We've been here for about seven years. Two of those years with the IMG Academy, and then uh, actually probably the math's not going to add up. Then we went four seasons with the Red Sox, and then the past three, uh, the past three with uh, with the Rays. And so yeah, been here, been here for a while.
0: You grew up in Los Angeles, though, correct?
1: Born and raised in Los Angeles. Yes, yes.
0: And I think you, I read that you come from a pretty big baseball family.
1: Yes. Yeah. come pretty big baseball family. I mean, uh, what's interesting is, yeah. So my father was an immigrant from the Island of Samoa. usually Samoans are known for football and fighting and music. And he was one of the only who got into baseball, didn't play any baseball growing up, no high school, no nothing. Walked on at BYU made the team as a number six outfielder wow. signed with the Dodgers and yeah, played, went to the minor leagues with the Dodgers and then uh, got released and then picked up by the Brewers and then uh, ended up retiring with the Brewers after a torn labrum. But yeah, yeah. So, uh, so yeah, so baseball was always, was always bat in the hand.
0: And you played yourself as well, right?
1: I did. I did. I grew up playing, uh, went to college, played at BYU, and then kind of read the writing on the wall. Baseball is, you got to love it, is, you know, you just, whatever you do. And I just, my love started to change. So I started to pivot a little bit uh, into, into something else
0: so last year the 2020 world series if growing up in los angeles i'm assuming you grew up a dodger fan that must have been a little bit bittersweet for you well
1: for it's funny that you say it's funny because i got that question a lot the only reason it was not bittersweet is because when you work with professional sports and professional athletes the people who i work with like you care about and i knew nobody on the dodgers i had worked with no one on dodgers and so been working with the Rays. I get paid by the Rays. And so it wasn't necessarily bittersweet because when it affects your livelihood and the roof over your head and the food on your table, you, and you put so much effort in, I was all raised with 0% of pulling for the Dodgers. So it wasn't really bittersweet. Now it was bittersweet for my family members, (laughs) for, For not so much my parents, but my sister in particular, she was, they went to the games and she had to like fight to not cheer when the Dodgers were doing well. But yeah, it was not bittersweet for me.
0: It's funny. I, I worked at ESPN for many years and at MLB and I, I covered a lot of hockey at ESPN. And I grew up a big Devils fan in New Jersey. And for 13 years, I covered the NHL postseason and the Stanley Cup. And people would be like, well, are the Devils, in? It. are you rooting for the Devils? If they're not in it, who are you rooting for? And I'm like, you'd be surprised how quickly things change. I root for really nice guys who work hard and deserve it. And I root for teams in cities where I want to go in the postseason. Exactly.
1: <laughs> That's the that is so true. That is, yeah. I can totally relate. I can totally relate. It's very
0: funny. I wish <laughs> I always used to say, I wish San Diego had a hockey team. <laughs> <I know. laughs>
1: exactly. Exactly.
0: So what got you into sports psychology?
1: So I so playing baseball, growing up playing baseball. My parents having no background in psychology. But when I got into the field, in hindsight, I realized that they were teaching us, myself and my siblings, much of the same principles, focusing on what you can control, being positive, having a routine. And that's just something that they just try to kind of figure out. So I grew up wanting to play. When I got to BYU, we had a mental performance coach or sports psychologist. He came in and he started teaching us breathing techniques. He taught us some strategies on resilience and some focusing techniques. And I remember being just fascinated by what he did and who he had worked with. And I walked up to him and I think my question was, what gives you the authority to talk like this and speak on this subject? And he goes, oh, I have a degree in in sports psychology. And I put a pin in that because I didn't even know that was possible. I didn't know there was a body of science that can teach somebody how to optimize human performance. But I didn't look into it. I continue my degree in broadcast journalism I went and did my internship in NBC Sports Los Angeles, and on day one, I couldn't stand it. I hated it. I realized that, okay, I don't want to report on athletes. I want to help athletes, but I don't want to be a coach. I don't want to be a strength and conditioning coach. I don't want to be an athletic trainer. And so it was just almost a pipe dream. It's something in the back of my mind. I didn't really know pro sports, just the organization, front office, player development, knew nothing of that. So I went into teaching. So I was a high school teacher for five years, and I was all in. I pivoted from baseball to broadcasting to teaching, and I loved it. I was going to do this for the rest of my life. I wanted to get a master's degree to essentially become a more effective teacher. I applied for a degree in higher education, and I got declined, which was surprising to me. I was like, how, how did I get declined? Like, You get declined to go into graduate school? Well, I did. And so I scoured the internet, uh, the 2009 version of the internet, just trying to say, okay, what other degrees can I go in? And at the University of Utah, there was a degree called the psychosocial aspect of sport. And any degree that has the word sport in it piqued my interest. I'm like, what is this? I looked into it and it was the outline was optimizing human performance, the science of motivation, the science of arousal control, the science of team cohesion and team dynamics and leadership. And I remembered talking to that sports psychologist in college. I applied, I got in and from the first class, I just fell in love. Once I graduated, I quit my job as a teacher. Mind you, my wife and three kids, they're all in diapers at the time. (laughs) My wife is like, are you crazy? But she was incredibly supportive at at the time. She's like, let's do it. I had a number of other odd jobs. I was a waiter. I did some MLM and I was a baseball coach just to put the roof overhead and put on the table. But then I had a passion to go teach sports psychology to youth. I started teaching young kids. I started teaching their parents. Uh, next thing you know, an opportunity came out to move our family to work with in the military, combat medics, military intelligence, and wounded warriors. I loved it. Teaching them strategies on habit building, goal setting, And I get a phone call from a place called the IMG Academy Mm -hmm. had never heard of it. They asked me to come to be the head of the performance mental conditioning team is what they call it. We flew our family to Bradenton, which is where we live now. That's what brought us here. And I loved it really focusing on youth and preparing college football players for the NFL combine, just worked with parents and coaches. I was speaking at a conference in Las Vegas, Nevada, and someone came up to me and they said, how would you like to do this with the professional baseball team? I didn't even know that existed. What are you talking about? Like, well, there is a team who's inquiring, would be wondering if you'd be willing to, to investigate. And this team was the Boston Red Sox. Ended up talking and the answer was a resounding yes. And was with them for a while. And then ended up going in the NFL with the Cleveland Browns and then uh, with the Tampa Bay Rays. And so that's a long-winded answer to say, essentially a principle I pulled out of from it is, I didn't know. I didn't know about it until I was in my late 20s, early 30s. And I just kept pivoting and just kept following my curiosity to see where it led me. And, uh, and here we are.
0: So I'm going to back you up for a minute. Yeah. I played softball at the University of North Carolina, and it was the fall of 1995. So we're talking a long time ago here. Mm-hmm. And we had a sports psychologist And he laid us all down in the outfield. And I remember like the grass being wet and it was after practice and I was kind of hungry and I like, didn't want to be there, but he laid us all down in the outfield. And he did what I now know is like a bit of a visualization meditation where he had us focus on your head and your neck, relax your neck, focus on your shoulders, relax your shoulders, imagine them melting into the grass, like an ice cream cone on a hot day. And he did that all the way down to our toes. And I was practically asleep in the outfield. And from that day in 1995 until now, that is how I put myself to sleep every night. It was the thing that hooked me on meditation and that many years ago when I had, no, I didn't even know what the guy was going to have us do. He just said, oh, everybody go lay out in the outfield. We had never seen the guy before. So that was the thing that kind of hooked me on the power of meditation and visualization. So I'm wondering if when you were in college and you met that sports psychologist, if there was something, a particular breathing exercise that really hooked you and you were like, wow, this works.
1: For us, it was visualization. So his lesson was on visualization and he had us sit not on the ground, but in our chairs. And he had us comb through our memories of a past experience and he had us activate our senses. What did you hear? What do you see? How did the bat feel in your hand? How did the ball feel in your hand or the emotions? And I remember in my mind going back and literally feeling and visualizing myself reliving a past successful experience. And then he had us doing some self-talk strategies. I am strong. I am ready. I am quick. And I remember in that moment thinking to myself, my dad taught me this. My mom taught me this a long time ago. And that's what, it was very familiar to me. It was very normal to me. And I remember kind of opening my eyes and looking around at my teammates. Some were like, oh, this is dumb. And others were like, this is great. And that's what it was. Not necessarily the mindfulness, but it was the visualization component session that he did with us. That's really really introduced me into this and i thought it was fascinating and i and i didn't realize it but i I fell in love with the field at that time
0: that's really cool so nowadays when uh, most of the teams do have mental skills coaches on staff i'm sure that you still meet with some resistance there's probably some players who think it's a load of hooey what do you do with those guys yeah well i think first of all you're right I think it really comes down to
1: respecting the player's experience and respecting the player's expertise. I think the ones who really succeed in this field or with any field, I think if you're a teacher or broadcaster, as you realize, no one likes to have things shoved down their throats and everyone's going to do things at their own pace, at their own time, whenever they want. I think in order to be successful, what I try to do is build relationships so strong, they can bear the weight of truth. And I think on the outset, so a couple of things is to show them that I'm normal. Like I'm not going to psychoanalyze you. I'm not going to judge you if you go and break a bat or or if you have you. Exactly. There's nothing like that. And not only am I not going to, that's not even my background. And I'm very open and transparent with, what my education is. I'm not a clinical psychologist. I'm not a behavior analyst. I have a degree in flow theory, how to help you tap into the best version of yourself and to be in the moment. That's it. I'm not here to talk about your past. I'm not here to talk about how you were raised. I'm here to help you just be the best version you can. And if we don't talk about that stuff, that's okay. Uh, We can talk about Netflix. We can talk about your family. We can talk about whatever. I'm going to be around And I'm not going to shove this down your throat. So that's number one. I think to have, we say in sports, having good feel, you got to have feel around the navigate the clubhouse because you're right. These are when you're working with elite professionals and not just professional athletes, I'm talking about any type of professional, they're very competent and they're very aware. And a lot of people are clamoring for their attention. And if I'm a professional athlete, I'm thinking, okay, what are your intentions? Do you want to put your fingerprints on me? Is it because if I'm successful, are you going to go on social media and say, look what I did with this guy? And so there's a lot of different things and variables I need to keep in mind. So the overall principle is I come in peace. I come in peace. (laughs) Number two is you need the buy-in and the promotion from the athletes. Number one, the clubhouse leaders and also the staff. And so we don't have a lot of time. Professional athletes don't have time and they would rather sit in their locker and be on their phone playing games or what or on social media then spend five minutes going to a mental skill session on meditation not all of them but some of them a lot of them and so what i want to do is i want to fit into the white space i want to do my training or my teaching consistently maybe it's 60 seconds attached to an advanced hitters meeting a meeting they're already going to be at 60 seconds right before they go do stretch with the pitcher stretch right before a staff meeting. And so I don't want to monopolize their time. I don't want to shove this down their throat. It's got to come organically, it's got to come naturally. And that's really how I approach things. I'm not trying to be the guru. I'm not trying to give them cookie cutter answers, but be a resource for them as they are the heroes of their own journey.
0: So how often do you do a 60 second say breathing exercise or something at the end of a hitters meeting And then have guys come to you and say, that was really cool. Give me more. All the time. Okay. That happens all the time.
1: Or it's a principle. So we talk about focus on what you can control. Here's an exercise to do it. And then players will come up afterward or during BP or on the bench or as we're flying or while we're eating. Hey, what do you got on that? Let's talk a little bit more about that, how that applies to me. So it's a subtle, simple little, Hey, here it is. I'm here. If you want to talk more about it, if not, that's all good. And so, but what you just said, I don't want to over calibrate the percentage, but I'd say it's in the high 90% of, or at least somebody comes up and says, hey, let's talk about more of that for me individually.
0: I want to go into more of that, but I do also want to know in this world of quantifying everything and data and stats and analytics, how does a baseball team measure the impact of a mental skills coach on the franchise?
1: It is very, very difficult. I have spoken to my NASA contemporaries, <laughs> my maybe SEAL contemporaries, my Olympic contemporaries, my Google contemporaries, no one h- can figure it out because it is so different. Human behavior is not binary. It's not algorithmic. And for you, you'd mentioned that what you, your experience on laying on the ground and doing that helps put you to sleep for somebody else. They hated it. And they, for someone else, they can't stand it. And while you're like, Oh, that's great for me to go to sleep. Another person might say, then why are you doing that before you play? Why would you, <laughs> why, 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 are you doing, why are you doing that after a practice? And so there's so many nuances and I am very aware of that. I'm very aware of all of, of it. You can't, the more pound the pulpit and you are on, this is how it needs to be done in my field. I say run because everyone is different. What works for you might not work for your teammate. What works for their teammate might not work for this person also I'm very aware what worked for you in the minor leagues might not work for you in the major leagues. What yeah. works early in your career might not work later in your career. And so that is the hard part about of being able to quantify it. And so what we're doing right now is simply, it's, it's anecdotal, it's qualitative. It's a coach or a player's word of mouth. Hey, I like working with him. I like working with her. I like this strategy. And it's, it's really being able to see with my eyes when I walk into a clubhouse, oh wow, this many players came up to me. I did this many sessions. The manager uses me this many times or asks my, my thoughts on how to communicate. And so it's very, very anecdotal, which makes it very hard to say, are you even effective? That's the hardest part.
0: How do you assess, say everybody in the clubhouse is buying into it, right? And they all wanna come and talk to you. How do you assess what each very different individual player needs from a mental skills perspective, because they may not even know because they're so new to it. Exactly right. You listen. And I might—I don't mean to be trite with that
1: answer, mm-hmm. but you listen very closely. I believe my main role is to provide an outside perspective that they trust. Someone who can look at them and listen to them and then continue to lean into their discomfort, to lean into their struggles uh, to lean in. And, and a lot of players don't come to me with problems. Like we're not, it's not like, Oh man, I'm, I'm struggling. They just want to get better. So yeah. it looks like this with the pro athletes. They'll come to me and say, Hey, what do you got on focus? And then I'll look at them and say, what do you got on focus? And like, well, I think this and this, and, and, I, and then I'll ask a follow-up question. Okay. What derails your focus? Oh, this derails my focus. And they might say external cues, the fan noise. I'm just making this up fan noise mm-hmm. or the pinstripes of the New York Yankees, like things on the outside, yeah. you know? And then I'll say, well, what about your internal dialogue? What, what about your internal cues? And i like, oh, that's interesting. What are some internal things that derail your focus? Oh, beating up on myself. Well, what does that sound like? When do you experience that most? How do you turn the volume down? So as you can see, it's just this organic conversation as we're eating our kale salads or drinking or whatever it just it's so organic and it's not cookie cutter and so that's how i know is because we're sitting there together exploring it together i like i said earlier respect them and i want them to know that i am not the stage on the stage but rather the guide on the side they are the hero to their own journey and like you said a lot of their answers are hiding in plain sight and so what I like to do is to go back in the past and say, hey, how did you overcome this obstacle? How did you do this? And as they tell their story, I'll listen and then I'll pull out lessons. Hey, it sounds like you use gratitude there. It sounds like you use your, your, your relationships with your family members. Hey, have you reached out to your family member, your dad or your mom lately? No, I haven't. Well, you did that in the past. That might be a good idea or, hey, you use. And so as you can see, I'm, I'm starting to get long-winded, but that's how I do it. I don't have a formula. I don't have a framework. I don't have a a cookie cutter list. It's what is needed for this individual man or woman who's in my face right here, right now.
0: <laughs> One thing that you mentioned that I think that everybody on planet Earth can relate to Is not necessarily silencing, but changing the dialogue with that internal voice because we all fall victim to negative self-talk. I can't, I'm too old, I'm too slow, I'm too fast, I ate too much, I didn't sleep enough, I'm not good enough. All these things that we tell ourselves every day. How do you get people out of that habit and teach them to have a better relationship with that voice in their head?
1: A word that you said when you just asked this is something that I love, and that's actually what I do is to normalize it. You said it, we all do it. Like we all experience it. And I think a lot of times people who are at the highest level, and and, then mind you, we the context is very important. The sample size that I work with, these are the best baseball players in the world. And these are the best. They're just really good at what they do. And to normalize it, to say, Hey, NFL athletes go through this. Navy SEALs go through this. CEOs go through this. The best musicians go through this. So just normalizing it, not minimizing it. But normalizing it is critical. And then is to identify, to create awareness. You can't change what you're not aware of. We lean into it. What do those voices sound like? What do you say? What are those labels? And you said it. I'm not good enough. What if I can't come back? What if I'm injured so long? What if I never get a hit again? And there are a number of different things that we can do. One way I can do is to focus on the attention control side. We get into mindfulness meditation, give them some exercise to teach them to, put their mind where they want, when they want. But I might notice this player probably doesn't want that. Let's go into journaling with this player. Let's have you write it all down, everything down on your journal so you can look at your thoughts instead of through your thoughts. But you know what? For another player, that exercise might not work. Let's do a different one. Let's work on the over of thoughts And let's just write down thoughts and put all over your locker, all over your window words that you want to say to yourself. But you know what? For another player that might not work. Let's just focus on external cues. And so you can see it's a variety of different tools or models or strategies that we can use with different players. And one thing I always do, I do say is we're not going to eliminate these thoughts because we're, we're setting unrealistic expectations. We're human. You're going to have those thoughts. One thing I like to tell people is when you have these doubts and these thoughts, that are the resistance pulling you away from doing something great, a lot of times that's your mind trying to sustain homeostasis. It's a protective mechanism, protecting you. Oh, if you do this, you're going to embarrass yourself, if you do this, you're gonna get crushed on social media. If you give your best, people are gonna make fun of you. You might fail, the odds are very high that you're gonna fail because they're performing at the tip of the spear. This is your mind saying, hey, I care about your emotion, your self-esteem, let's protect you, tread lightly. And it's simply looking at it and say, you know what? Thank you, but we're gonna do this. We're gonna go at it. We're gonna, we're gonna like, we do that self-talk type thing. And so I really want to help them realize that we're not going to eliminate it, but if we could turn the volume down, let's do that. If we can go from a nine to an eight or a 10 to a 9.5, let's do that. And also help you realize that you can perform at a high level in spite of what you're thinking, in spite of your feelings. And so those are some of the things that we do that I'm as going through my mind as I'm talking with somebody individually.
0: I find this also fascinating because we all attach emotion to those things that are things, something that happened in the past that you're bringing into the present, something that might happen in the future. You're afraid of it hasn't even happened yet. And I grew up in a baseball family. My grandfather was Yogi Berra. One of his little known Yogiisms is I ain't in no slump. I just ain't hitting. He had this amazing ability to not attach emotion to anything. It was just a fact that he hadn't had a hit in a while. It wasn't a slump. I ain't in no slump. And I don't know how he did it, but I have no idea. But it's probably why he was one of the best clutch hitters ever, because he was never nervous because there was nothing to be nervous about. And if I could put that in a bottle and sell it, I would be a gajillionaire. I did you say it was
1: great grandfather, grandpa, my my grandpa, my grandpa, your grandpa? Oh my gosh, that's amazing! That's amazing. He is the best, legendary one, uh, icon. I love what you said. I don't know how he does it because a lot of times with these mental performance strategies and tools, you'll hear players who are like, "Oh, I wish I was able to focus more. I wish I was able to be more positive. I wish I was able to just not think and just go." One thing that we really need to understand is a lot of our makeup. Are the double helix of our DNA, how we're wired. No, your grandfather just no, he probably didn't read a book. He didn't have, probably didn't have a sports psychologist he worked with. I don't know. He probably didn't listen to podcasts. Obviously I'm being, <laughs> he, he wasn't on social media, reading articles. He was just being him. He was just who he is. And what I love about that is organically, he was reframing the situation to help him. I'm not a, i ain't in no slump. I just ain't hitting. That's it. That, that's what it is. We don't need to psychoanalyze it. I don't need to do all these things. That's how he's framing it. And with a lot of these, some people don't know how to do that because they don't do that naturally. They have to learn the skill on how to do that. The skill on reframing, the skill on changing the way they view their situation to help them rather than hurt them. That is a powerful tool that people actually have to learn that Your grandfather did so naturally, and I think that's really cool. Thanks for sharing that.
0: It's interesting. There's, um, he was a, a World War II veteran. Was in the D-Day invasion, and he came home when a lot of others did not. And I think you see this with a lot of the members of that Greatest Generation who came home from war, knowing that they sort of got away with something, and that gratitude was sort of built into their existence because they knew that there was a very real chance that they might not be there at that moment. You know. And I think that that's something that a lot of people struggle with. Like I, I, you know, you make your gratitude list and I think I'm certainly grateful for everything I have, but I haven't looked death in the face and cheated it. You know, I think that generation was given that opportunity to kind of reframe the way they look at life.
1: I love that you said that. There is a (laughs) model in behavior economics. It's uh, from Lewin, the researchers Lewin. It's your behavior is a function of your personality times your environment or your experience, we could say in this. And so as you said, talking about those who came back from World War II, your grandfather's generation in particular, combination of who they are with what they have overcome is leads to a function of how they view things afterwards and how they act and how they respond. Having a slump is nothing compared to what he overcame during World War II and just the devastation that he saw. I saw this and see this When I work with, as I mentioned, working with the wounded warriors, when I they don't have legs anymore, they don't have arms anymore, they're burned, they can't do things. Their quality of life is completely changed. But it's interesting. Once the grieving process is passed, the the stinging part you really kind of never really over it. You'll still get to get it sometimes. It's so painful. But their new look on life, their new view of things, their new framing around things is changed and. They have an unbelievable perspective because their personality combined with what they had overcome, they just, their resilience, their anti-fragility is just, they're superheroes because of what they've overcome. And if you're listening, whoever's listening to this, they might be thinking, well, well I was never in war. Well, I don't, I have my limbs. I, it's all relative. If you just think about something difficult you've overcome, not just something you've accomplished, but look at what you've overcome and how did you do that? Oh, that will help you reframe the stress that you're currently going through and help you realize, you know what? I've overcome difficult mountains before and I can use those lessons to overcome this mountain.
0: Oh, this is so interesting. So, baseball is kind of unique in the sports world because you can't like pass the ball to somebody. So, it's a very individual team sport. So, I'm kind of wondering how you approach athletes who are in individual sports athletes who are in in team sports who get a lot of help but then baseball that kind of walks that line between the two so there are significant
1: differences team sports versus individual sports you look at gymnastics and swimming and boxing where you are it's all on you tennis it's all you you don't have teammates to support you help you get you out there is a different there are a lot more hard on themselves, these individual sports, a lot of them, but then they, you learn, Hey, I got to figure this out myself. However, on the team sport, as you said, there's more of a camaraderie. That's why uh, team cohesion is so important, but it does provide another pinch point for friction for difficult. When you have the team sport, I personally know tennis players. They're like, the reason I play tennis is because I don't have to worry about teammates because <laughs> it just, it just, I just want I want to be by myself. But on the flip side, it could be a huge source of motivation, of strength, of inspiration, and friendship, and so forth. But I love what you said about baseball. Yes, it's a team sport, but it's all these individuals as well. Not only that, it's a huge game of failure. Huge game of failure where, as we know, hitters, I mean, it's a common statistic. You fail seven out of 10 times in your career, Mm you're a Hall of Famer. We've all heard that in pro sports. But it's also different, too, because in football, or basketball or hockey, it's so dynamic and it's so just like you're working together and there's just the constant movement. There's a lot more in baseball, a lot more analytics and, and, and so forth. So it does make it very difficult. So what I see the difference in working with these guys, we talk a lot about failure, a lot about tools and tactics, techniques on how to learn and reframe failure, strengthening your relationship with failure. Number two about baseball too is another or another component is you play as many games as we play 162 games. And it is, these are long games. They're not time bound. Uh, they're not uh, time bound. And so training them to have routines and in between routines, in between at bats, in between pitches, in between innings, in between games to sustain consistency, there's so much out of your control. And so these are some things that I've seen just a, a few in particular, both routines, importance of routines and habits, the importance of strengthening your relationship with failures. We talk about that all the time. Oh, and another thing in baseball, there's no physical component to it. So when I worked at the NFL, if you're mad or frustrated, go hit someone harder. In (laughs) basketball, there's physicality to it. You can run. There's an explosiveness to it. In baseball, if I'm a hitter and I'm mad, okay, go swing harder. You know, that just totally throws off the kinetic chain. The harder you swing and the tighter you are, the slower you are. Pitcher as well. It's how you grip the ball and you caveman and you try to throw it hard. It just throws all of your mechanics off. And so there's a level of emotional arousal that you need to sustain in spite of the stress and the fear and the anger that you're feeling that's it's very unique to baseball compared to other other sports.
0: This concludes part one of our conversation with Justin Sua. Be sure to check out Part 2. For more great advice and information on how to improve your mindset, follow Justin on Instagram and Twitter at, at Justinsua. You can also follow The Rays on both Instagram and Twitter at at RaysBaseball. Until next time, for more information on Food of the Gods or to download other episodes, visit us at foodofthegodspodcast.com or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can also follow us on Instagram at at foodofthegodspod or email us at podcast at gmail.com. Food of the Gods is a Digitant Podcast production.